Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. This is God's word. Let us pray. Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your name has power. The name you give us have power. You change our identity when we become yours. You call us beloved and your children. May you, your name, and your identity for us be greater than what the world identifies us as. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. God, you unite people across every barrier we try and make between ourselves. You find power and weakness. Bring comfort to those affected by the school shooting in Texas and all victims of gun violence. Break our heart for what breaks yours. Give us this day our daily bread. Lord, we know every day is not guaranteed, and we know you ordained all of our days according to your good and perfect will. May we live in that and know that. And forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Our sins are indeed great. May we confess them to you. We carry the weight of generational sins, the sins of people we love getting hurt, and we pay the ultimate price of sin, which is death. You forgive murderers, adulterers, and you call us to do the same. May we remember that vengeance is yours, justice is yours. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. God, there is so much evil in this world. In our schools, inside of hearts, the evil we create with our own doing, you can deliver us from all evil in this world and are far greater. In a world so quick to deny you because of darkness and evil, may we be your hands and feet to show your love and that you will not abandon us to the realm of the dead. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Thanks, Callahan. So I asked myself, as I was thinking through this sermon topic, what do I think may be the biggest fear that we as Christians hold, specifically relating to our faith? And I want you to even like maybe take a moment and think about that for yourself. Like what, what is the big thing about God that you're afraid to realize may not be true? Let me just take a beat and think about that for a second. Is I have my answers and they're essentially, I think that intrinsically we have a fear that God is not good that God is either indifferent or cruel at the worst. And I think we have a fear that God is distant from us, that he's not actually close. He's not near to us, but he's far. I think these are the fears, at least in, from my own experience, and, and that this could be a really interesting conversation to even unpack after service, but I think that two grand fears that we have as, as Christians, as faithful Christians, but still as imperfect Christians, is that God may not be good and that God may not be close 
And as we start talking about the Lord's Supper, it's incredible to think that this is, was given to us by our God as a reminder and as a memorial that both of those fears are incorrect. As we take the Lord's Supper, we remember two things. Two things are blatantly clear in the Lord's Supper, and it's that God is good and kind to us, and that God is close to us and present. So I like that to be kind of the backdrop as we delve into stories and, and backgrounds and, and whatnot. That God is meeting the fears that we have as Christians in, in what he's giving us here. Now, the Lord's Supper, for those who aren't maybe as familiar with the background, it's built on story. So I want to spend some time unpacking the story of the Lord's Supper. Because the first story of the Lord's Supper is actually not Jesus himself. I mean, in a grander theological way, everything's about Jesus. Yes, we know Zach. But, uh, but uh, in, a, in just like a smaller way, the, the beginning of the Lord's Supper's story is in the Passover. And if you're not familiar, the Passover is probably the grand, like, high point of the Old Testament, of the story of Israel. Because this is the deliverance of God's people from harsh, cruel, oppressive Egypt who had forced hundreds of thousands, if not millions of Israelites into hard labor and slavery. And so God, in bringing them out, he was doing two things. He was breaking chains and he was also making them new. So he was freeing them from something bad, and then he was giving them something great, which is a new and beautiful identity, being children of God. And so when the people of Israel remembered the Passover, it was always as a remembrance of God delivering them from that form of oppression and giving them a new name and a new identity. One of the symbols for the Passover was kind of a throwback to one of the, the nights that uh, God ordained what, was, what the Passover was actually named for, which was each family would take a lamb, they would sacrifice it, and then they would take the blood of the lamb and smear it over the doorpost so that when the spirit of wrath came through Egypt, only the only those who were worthy of judgment would receive it. Or I guess that's not true. That God's people would be spared of any kind of judgment. So the lamb became this very central figure of the Passover. And for generations and generations, Israel was told to continue to remember the Passover as this constant looking back and seeing God's faithfulness. And often it was in that lamb who was a loss of life to allow for the gift of life. And so now we can, kind of, so that's kind of the backdrop that was in the minds of all, because now, now we're at the story that, that Nathan read for us. Jesus is at the table with his closest friends and Judas. And it's one of the nights of Passover, but they're having a Passover ceremony we don't know which night specifically, 
But we know they're eating together. They're having bread. They're having wine. These are all very customary things. And they're all thinking in the, ba- in the back of their minds. They're thinking of the lamb. They're thinking of Egypt. They're thinking of the, the identity of their people. And Jesus, is, Jesus takes this piece of bread and he says, take and eat this bread, which is a very, like, it's a very common thing you would say at a dinner table. If I was having dinner with Nathan, I'd be like, hey, dude, well, Nathan's gluten-free, so I'd be really considerate of that. But I would say, Nathan, this gluten-free bread is incredible. You should eat this. Like, this is, this is just common dinner etiquette. So Jesus says, take, eat this bread. And everyone's like, yeah, okay, yeah, it must be pretty good bread. You know, we've got a good baker out here. And then Jesus says, for this is my body. And all of a sudden, Jesus has gone off the script. Like, I just imagine, like, all of their heads kind of perking up, being like, that, we don't say that during Passover. That's kind of weird. I just imagine one dude in the back, like, thumbing through, like, this printed out manual of how to celebrate Passover. And he's like, I don't see that anywhere. This is, this is really, this is new stuff happening here. And so they eat the bread. And then again, Jesus, like, and this was another uncommon thing, was that Jesus doesn't, with the wine, Jesus doesn't say, hey, lift up your wine glasses. This is my blood. Jesus is giving his wine glass and passing it around, and he's saying, this is my blood. And everyone is probably thinking, this, this, is, this is weird. This is, this, is, this is symbolic of the lamb. That's why we're having this. Jesus is saying, actually, no, I'm, I'm the lamb. I'm about to be. So what we see is Jesus once again taking something that was very near and dear to the hearts and cultures of these people and not so much turning on his head. He's not abolishing it. He's actually saying, when we saw this lamb and when we see this story of deliverance, it was as grand and as incredible as it was for our people. I'm here to tell you, it actually means so much more. And we're still in the midst of that story. Because all the lambs, all the millions probably of lambs that were sacrificed as a remembrance for Passover, every single one of them was just an arrow pointing forward to something that Jesus was about to do. And it was to give himself up as the final sacrifice for his body to be broken as the lambs was, for his blood to be spilled as the lambs was, and to become a true and perfect sacrifice, the life that was lost to give new life. And there we see the significance of the Lord's Supper. And this is probably background information. I'm sure many of you guys are familiar with kind of how these stories connect. But when we come together and we take this and we read the passages and the whole do this in remembrance of me, many of us know. We come up here and we take the bread and we drink the wine and it's a way of remembering the love and the goodness of Jesus. And if you've been to like a number of different church circles with different backgrounds. I'm sure maybe you grew up where it was called the Eucharist, and that's fine. And there's, okay, thank you, Zach. Um, And, you know, there's other places where they would call it the the Lord's Supper or the Lord's Table, or probably the most common one is Communion. And, you know, I'm going to spend about 30 seconds on this because it's not worth diving into a ton. But even in terms of just the, the practical side of, well, what, what is 
the bread and the wine. Because we know that a, a Roman Catholic would say, well, we believe that it is literally becoming the body and blood of Jesus when we consume it. And I, I don't think in our, in our church's world we would go that far. But then there, there are many in, in more of a, of a Baptist world where they would say, no, we don't believe there's anything significant about the bread and the wine. It's really just a symbol. It could be potato chips and Dr. Pepper. Like it's only meant to be symbolic. That was a little bit of a shot. Maybe that wasn't fair. It's whatever. I think we would fall somewhere into the tradition that says that we believe that the Holy Spirit is blessing and anointing these elements in a way that separates them from something common, but not in a way that gives it full presence just because we don't see that as biblical. And there, there's my 30-second spiel. I'm moving on already. But so what we see in this passage is Jesus driving home this idea that's something that they were already very familiar with, the Passover story. He's essentially saying, this Passover that you were familiar with, I'm actually showing you that that story is still happening. And just as you and the people of Israel were delivered from an evil power in Egypt, I am going to lay my life down so that I can deliver all of my people from the powers of evil as well. And just as Israel was given a name and a dwelling place and a new identity when I pulled them from slavery, when you receive the gift that I have to offer, you will have a new dwelling place and a new heart. And so, yeah, we see that great, great significance for us. And honestly, as we think about it, it, it makes sense that it's food, right? Because why do we eat food? Like food is a vessel for, for nutrients, but food also fills us up when we're hungry. Food gives us energy when we're weak. The, the, the significance of the Lord's Supper being food and not just, I don't know, writing something down on a piece of paper for a remembrance is that it literally is nourishing ourselves on the truth of God's love and God's presence to us. So it is meant to be an intimate thing. And honestly, it's, it's meant to be a lifeblood for us. Like we take it once a week because we think to ourselves, at the end of seven days, we should be tired in some sense. We should need that, that recharge. And that recharge is the coming together of the saints and the listening to, uh, you know, the flailings of whatever pastor you get stuck with that week. But it's also, it's the Lord's Supper. It's that remembrance of who God is and what he has done to change and shape us. And so that's the story of the Lord's Supper. I've got a couple more things, and I'm going to dive into a couple more, a little bit more personal um, sharings here. So here's my next point, the invitation of the Lord's Supper. The invitation of the Lord's Supper. So growing up, and this is maybe familiar to some of you guys, we didn't do communion every week like we do it here. We did it once a month. And so Whenever we had it, it was always dedicated as Communion Sunday. Like the, the whole service was built around communion. And, 
you know, I have no, no qualms about frequency. Certainly, I, I prefer the, the more regular, but I'm not, I'm not here to pick fights with other churches and how they do things. But when I was growing up, there was one thing that I distinctly remembered from every communion service, which was that they would read through the big-time communion passages in the New Testament. And one of them has that phrase, let everyone examine themselves. And it just made me think, okay, that's a little, all right, I'll examine myself, I can do that. And it always followed that up with, lest he eat and drink judgment to himself. And I'm like, what does that even mean? Like, does it turn into poison? Is it like the anti what the Catholics think? Like, am I going to eat this and just, it turns into rocks in my stomach? Like, what does that mean? It's terrifying. But consistently, it had this sense of like, Before you take this, you better make sure that your heart is as good as it can be and that you are not coming up here with any kind of false motive or fake love for God or anything like that. Because if you just, if you mess this up, if you don't take this seriously, it will become judgment and it'll be wrath for you instead of love. And it made me terrified of communion services. I was like, I, if I could, like, in a private way, just not do it, like, because the way my church would do it was they would have the big, like, silver platters where they would have the plastic cups with the grape juice and the flat little pieces of bread that look like guitar picks. And you'd hand those around and, like... I don't know. My church was nosy. They, they would know if I was like, uh, I'm not going to take one. And then there'd be conversation afterwards. But if I could more privately just abstain, I would have during that time in my life. Because I'm like, I'm not trying to eat myself into hell because I'm not as pure as I should be here. But legitimately, like a, a struggle that I had probably, and this is not, I'm not exaggerating by any means, for probably 10 years The first 10 years of being a Christian in my life, I struggled with this like incredible, incredibly severe like imposter syndrome where I was just like, I shouldn't be here. I'm the black sheep. Like, honestly, I think one of the things that did it for me was I read that book. I read those left behind for kids books, which we're not going to delve into all of that right now. But I will say uh, there was a character who thought he was a Christian, but then he was left behind because he wasn't a real Christian. And immediately I was like, that's me, dude. I'm I'm Marcus. I'm, I'm this fake dude who's just pretending to be a Christian. And when that, when that rapture goes off, when the floor drops out beneath me, like that's when, I'm, that's when everyone's going to know that good old John was just a fraud. And so the problem was when I saw this, I never saw the Lord's table as something that was invitational. It never seems like it was saying, come eat, enjoy, remember, delight yourself in God. It was always like this big gate that was up that said, this gate will come down for you once you're righteous enough. Once you figure yourself out, you get to enjoy it. But until then, you don't deserve it. And it was so intimidating to me because it just really, really fed into this feeling of, I don't belong 
Like I don't belong in this community, but even on a grander scale, I don't belong to God. Like God's not going to claim me. God's not going to advocate for me. So there were all these fears built around that. And I remember this story that a pastor preached one time. He was talking about when he used to be a pastor out in a, a rural small town in Scotland. That's where he was from. And they were doing a communion service, and this woman came up. And it's a small town, so everybody knows everybody. And this woman who came up had this, uh, like, she had a very bad reputation in town, is what I'll say. Maybe, I'm not even sure, just just my memory, I'm not even sure why. Maybe she was known as as, as promiscuous. Maybe she was was a sex worker. Who, Who knows? But she came up, and... She's wrestling with herself. Because you can see this look on her face of like deep conflict and stress. Like, am I, am I supposed to do this? Like, would, is lightning going to come and, and hit me? And the pastor could have easily said something like, eh, maybe, go, maybe go like figure out your sins first and then, and then come back and take this. Maybe next month you can take this. But he sees her coming up, and she's struggling, and she's conflicted. And he just looks at her, and he says, it's for sinners. Like, this is for sinners. Like, it's that throwback to to Jesus with the woman who had committed adultery. She was found in a sin, like a real sin. Like, what she did was wrong. And the Pharisees are trying to stone her for it. Jesus basically kicks them out. And the moment that he speaks to her, what does he say? He says, I don't condemn you. Now go and sin no more. But I don't condemn you. Because she didn't even know it yet. But the sin that she had just committed was about to be covered by this random guy he's talking. She was talking to. But that's the response. Like that, That is the invitation of the Lord's Supper. It's not figure your stuff out or get everything right. Now, I'm certainly not saying this is a supper that isn't calling anything from us. But that's the thing. The Lord's Supper is meant to be a reflection and, and, in a sense, an embodiment of the gospel. The gospel is a call. The gospel is an invitation. I mean, like, whenever I kind of preface and introduce the Lord's Supper, I always say, yeah, I mean, it's something that we genuinely believe is for Christians. It's for those who have put their faith in Jesus and who are walking with him right now. So I wouldn't want someone who wasn't a Christian to take the Lord's Supper. I believe that it is a gift that God has given to his people. But here's the part two of that statement. I also wouldn't want anyone to not be a Christian, (laughs) Like, I also wouldn't want anyone to not, like, I wouldn't want anyone to see the love and goodness and kindness and presence of God, the invitation that lays out before them, not just for forgiveness, but everything that Israel got, freedom from uh, evil and oppression and, and given a new identity. I wouldn't want anyone to come into a space that I was in, especially when I have a microphone strapped to my face, I wouldn't want anyone to miss out on this because of that. And so that's, that's just the thing, is that the gospel is an invitation. 
It is an offer for all people to come and receive that same promise that that woman, probably caught in the most shameful moments of her life, experienced. The freedom from her sin and imperfections and the call to live a beautiful, better life, like touched by the goodness and presence of God. Like that, that, that's appealing. This, this idea of like, man, I'm, I'm too sinful to take the Lord's Supper. It's like, are you bleeding too much to go to the hospital? Like, are you too hungry to go out to get something to eat? Pants too loose to go to the tailor? Like, the thing that you're refusing is the thing that is meant to bring you healing. So why would you refuse that? It's not God who's refusing you. So, let's see. Let me try to find myself here. Give me one second. I've just found, and, and even as I spoke to kind of like my little black sheep imposter syndrome, the more I realized that repentance is a beautiful gift and a beautiful thing that God is giving to us to be able to let go of, of, of dead and, and just ill-contrived things that our hearts long for, to try to, to try to center that and recalibrate our internal compasses on God. Like, that's a beautiful thing. It's not an easy thing. It's a painful thing. But it's a beautiful thing. But the thing is, when we see God's love for us as proportionate to our ability to repent, then what happens is when we're doing great, we think God is just overflowing with joy over us. But we have a bad day and we think that God's ready to throw us in the trash. And no wonder this is the kind of person who doesn't want to take the Lord's Supper. You don't want to get close to anything that God has touched. When in reality, God is... God is just as good as we hope he is. He's better. He's more good than that. So, here's my second point. And here's my third and final, the call of the Lord's Supper. The call of the Lord's Supper. Take a drink real quick. I was reading through um, kind of like an old church document that was uh, talking about the Lord's Supper. And I read this quote that really surprised me because throughout the course of reading it, it was really getting into what we've talked about. It was getting into the, the, the symbolisms and the connection to the Old and New Testament and all that other kind of stuff. But then at, at one of the last lines it said was, in short, by the using of this holy sacrament, we are moved to a fervent love of God and of our neighbors. Let me do that one more time. In short, by the use of this holy sacrament, we are moved to a fervent love of God and our neighbors. Now, I think that the most dangerous place we can find ourselves now is to see communion as just like this, this like special, personal, one-on-one, -on -one, me and Jesus time where it's just like we get to have our little cup and our bread and like Jesus just like 
I don't know, we just have this experience of like 20 doves just like, just like going, going like that, like we're, like we're leaving some kind of wedding ceremony or something. And that doesn't turn into anything that's calling something from us. Because like I said, the Lord's Supper is a reflection of the gospel. The gospel does include the love of God for us based on the, the level ground that Jesus has established. But the gospel is also a call. And it is a call to love God in response to the great and tremendous love that he has for us, but also to love our neighbors, to love the people who are sitting next to us. It's interesting, when we look at that passage that I mentioned earlier, the, the let a man examine himself, that, that passage, the context of that, of what Paul was referencing, is very interesting. Because what was happening in Corinth, which was the church that Paul was writing to, was when they would have communion, it wasn't just bread and wine. They would like have a big potluck. And so all the wealthy people in the community would bring all this lavish spread of food and then there would also be poor people in the community who would probably bring just whatever they could afford to bring, probably just small amounts of maybe not the best food in the world. And so what happened is in this church, the people would come in and they would have their communion and all of the wealthy would just gorge out on all this food. Because in their minds, they're like, well, I brought this nice food, so I should be able to enjoy it. And so in a way, they were taking communion in a way that was incredibly gluttonous and selfish and was disrespectful to the people who were literally in their own church because they were poor. So when Paul is saying, let, let, let someone examine themselves, he's not just saying like, oh yeah, toil over every single minute detail of your life and, and, and all that stuff. What he's actually saying is, See if you're being selfish. See if you're disrespecting God. But also, look at how you're treating the person next to you. Look at how you're treating the person next to you. Because that may actually be what's dishonoring God through you taking the Lord's Supper. It's that you are harming the person right beside you without even noticing and so that gets stickier because you're like, well, I mean, John, I didn't elbow somebody on the way down the line. I tried my best to not, you know, be blatantly rude as I got the Lord's Supper at Mission Church right here. Like, I, I get that. I get that. But again, I think it's more of a call so when we examine ourselves, not just examine ourselves in the light of this pious me and Jesus, that's all that exists, but you have to think about the other people in your life. You have to think about the people who God has placed around you, whether they're family, whether they're roommates, or whether they're just people who happen, you happen to share space with. Where no one's gonna love anyone perfectly. So there has to be like, you know, some kind of level-headed expectations, but you also have to just recognize where sin is creeping in and be able to call it what it is. Because if not, you might actually be in danger of a, 
of just not honoring God the way he ought to. So what would that even look like here? Interestingly, I've got, every time I ask someone from either inside our church or at brand new outside the church, I always hear two things. One, really good. One, we'll see. The first is that we're a very communal church. People who are close are close. The friendships that exist are meaningful. I agree. I've experienced that. I experience that every day. It's a blessing. I I consider myself tremendously blessed to be able to be a part of a church where there are people who care about each other, especially the people they're close to. Second thing I hear is that Mission Church is really cliquish. Mission Church is very cliquish. Now, here's the thing. I've been to high school. I, I've been, I'm a product of the public schooling. You know, I understand. You get, you get 50 people together. They can't all be equally friends with each other. I understand that. There, there are going to be just people who naturally gravitate because of shared interests or personality or whatever. Like, there's always going to be people who are closer to like each other than they would be to someone else. I'm never, I would never argue against that. The question is how do we treat those on the outside of those circles? It doesn't even have to be how we treat them as in like are we actively mistreating them, but I don't know. I've realized, and this was convicting when I realized it, it it's pretty easy to tell what my heart is towards someone when I see their name pop up on my phone. I'm just like, oh, okay. Because like some people I'm like, sweet. And some people I'm like, I gotta get back to that. And like, like I said, we can't love people perfectly, but if we're finding ourselves very content with showing a very diminished love or just an absence of love. I mean, I I always think of what Jesus said when he was explaining love in the Gospels, right? He said, even the tax collectors love people who love them back. (laughs) That's not love. That's That's just enjoying a fun friendship. Anyone who's had a really deep, meaningful, loving relationship, whether it's with a significant other or with just a friend, knows that the test of love is what you have to deal with when things aren't as enjoyable anymore. So everyone here, as a follower of Jesus, is challenged to love those close to you deeply. But also, as we think of the example in Corinth, we have to ask ourselves, but how am I loving those who I'm not close to? How am I being kind and considerate and responsive? If you've ever had a conversation with me, you know that I'm not the kind of person who would say that every single person needs to be, like, that, that, that we need to, like, ignore and stomp over any kind of, like, healthy distancing in a friendship. But I would still say, like, there is a level of kindness and consideration we can show even to those we're not super close with, even to those who we don't love a ton, even to those who, when their texts come up on our phone, we're like, ah, darn. So I think we should consider that. As we conclude, 
Actually, no, I have one more point I wanted to say about that. Just look at the analogy, right? The Lord's table, the Lord's supper. Like imagine the image that that invokes. We're at family dinner with our parents, but also our siblings. They get to be at the table too. The problem with these dudes in Corinth who were stepping over the poor so they could make sure they had a great time at the Lord's Supper was that in their mind, all they saw was the father and they didn't see their siblings. But what's unfortunate is that we make up the body of Jesus. That's literally an analogy that the Bible uses. So if you are abusive or unkind to people in the community, and you think that you're loving God, you can't, because that's his bride. So, all right, that's all I have to say about that point. Lastly, as we conclude, I want to zoom back into the passage that Nathan read for us. If I can find that piece of paper, here we go. The last sentence is this. Jesus says, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. There was a commentary I read that suggested that when Jesus was talking about the fruit of the vine, he was referring to the last cup of wine that they would have at a Passover celebration. And that that last cup was meant to be drank together as a communal rejoicing and celebrating. And what Jesus is saying right here is, I'm not going to drink this because we're not done yet. I'm not going to drink this because the kingdom is coming, but it's not fully here. And I think that is where we have to conclude a sermon on the Lord's Supper because it's where Jesus concluded his like five-line sermon on the Lord's Supper. He said, look at what I'm about to do. Think of how wonderful it is and that it re-strengthens our souls. Think of the good love of God. Think of the people who are sitting at this table with you who I'm also calling you to love. And remember, this last cup, I'm not going to drink yet. Because one day, we'll be sitting together in our full kingdom realized when New Jerusalem hovers down to the earth and every wound and every evil and every bit of violence in this world is finally put to an eternal end. And that's when I'll drink this cup and you'll drink it with me. So... That's our, that's our little conclusion of hope, and, uh, and that's all I got for us. So what we're going to do now is, uh, is a couple things. First, we're going to give ourselves an opportunity to respond to what we just heard. This is our confession time. You'd say, John, I'm feeling this great buzz. I'm loving God right now. Why do you want me to confess? That sounds like such a downer. I'll say this, because the response that we get whenever we confess to God is always the love of forgiveness and of restoration. So we confess to God because we know that he's not going to rub our faces in it, that he's not going to pour contempt on us. But we know that when we confess, he's actually building us back. 
And so we're going to take a couple minutes, just respond, confess, whatever the Lord has put on your heart to confess. That's what we'll do. It's also a way of, as that verse says, preparing ourselves for the Lord's Supper. And then we're going to come up and we're going to take it. And, uh, and that'll be really cool. And then Mike's going to lead us in some musical worship. And then there is giving in the back. Um, there's giving in the back. Uh, for anyone who just appreciates mission and wants it to keep doing what it's doing, we would love any type of financial support. Um, yeah. So let me pray for us, and then we'll have two minutes of silence, and then Mike will bring us back in with music, and I will uh, I'll meet you at the table. So, Heavenly Father, um, and again, I... I think of Augustine's words when he says that you are nearer to us than we are to ourselves. Um, I find a lot of comfort in that. Again, I just want to think, Father, like how you have built this to address the deep fears that we sometimes carry in our imperfect state, which is that you may not be good and that you may not be close. And we believe that you are both of those things. And please strengthen us when we don't believe that. Um, Lord, just help us to examine our hearts now. Whatever it is you would like to just kind of speak to us. Help us to love you and to love the people who you've given to us. And to just walk into that new identity that you've given us. So uh, yeah, help us to pray now. And then help us to experience that joy after we know that we've been forgiven.